Welcome to the Kinetic Enterprise, built to evolve, presented by Deloitte. Your host for the program is Bonnie D. Graham. This program will help set up your business for the future with topics centered on the four pillars of the Kinetic Enterprise. We'll focus on case studies and leading practices designed to move you to the next level. Now, here is Bonnie D. Graham. Welcome to the Kinetic Enterprise presented by Deloitte. I'm producer host Bonnie D. Graham, and have we got a great topic for you today. Let me tell you. Forces across technology, media, and telecommunications. And I want you to all remember we're using TMT to represent that large object, that large collection of topics. TMT continue to shape the global, global business landscape and the human experience. What's next, you're wondering, and how can your organization prepare for the future? Join us today for a deep dive into the top TMT trends as we discuss strategies that can help you and your organization evolve at the speed of change. That's what the Kinetic Enterprise is all about. From chip shortages, 5G, Wi-Fi 6, I never heard of it and I'm going to learn today, to AI regulation, wellness wearables, and the technology gender gap. Our conversation today will explore some of the biggest topics emerging in the TMT space today. You're going to find out what these trends could mean to you and to your business challenges and the opportunities, and that's what we're going to look at. Our conversation will examine the impact of recent news on the TMT front and provide steps you can take to prepare your organization to thrive despite the ongoing disruption that we all are. It's part of our everyday normal landscape now. Listen in as our panel of professionals paints a vivid picture of things to come and things you can do to get ready. I'm delighted to welcome Deloitte's Duncan Stewart. Duncan, for the video, please wave hello. And Suzanne Hupfer for their insights on the Kinetic Enterprise. What is the tech and telecom future of the enterprise? TMT Predictions 2022 has the answers. And Duncan and Susan are both co-authors of the TMT report. Welcome to both of my esteemed guests. Duncan Stewart, you've been on with me before. I'm so happy to see you again. And for our listeners on Voice America, we are recording this on Zoom. And I have the pleasure and privilege of watching my guests think and talk. And this is what makes it such a rich experience for us. So Duncan Stewart, would you please refresh everybody's memory? Who are you? What do you do at Deloitte? And tell us a little bit about what is this report? Duncan, welcome. Thanks, Bonnie. It's great to be back. It's uh, only six months since our last one. Uh, Not even same time next year, same time every six months. So I've been at Deloitte now since 2008. Before that, actually, I was a venture capitalist, hedge fund manager, portfolio manager, investing in TMT companies. So uh, unusually for a researcher, I have, in fact, actually put my money where my mouth was. Uh, These days, though, I have been at Deloitte, where since 2008, I have been co-author of Deloitte's annual. TMT Predictions Report. This is a report that Deloitte puts out every year, taking a look at between 10 and 20 trends across the tech, media, and telecommunications landscape. The idea being, we're not trying to predict stuff that's 20 or 30 years out, but we're also trying to go kind of maybe a year, two, sometimes three. What's different about our TMT predictions, Bonnie, is that they're all quantified. We've always got numbers. We actually size markets. We give you timing. And the really important thing about that is that we can be wrong. We can mark our own work or you can mark it for us. And what I think is is so good about that is that it really allows us to it allows me when I go and I talk to people to say, here's a number. And that number is much more useful to them than vague generalities. 
Very, very interesting. And then vague generalities. That's important, Duncan, because as I said in my intro, it was a promise, I think, we're going to give our listeners strategies and ideas and insights and inspiration, perhaps, on what they can do about these trends and grow and get their businesses going even better in the coming year. We are, uh, full disclosure, we're early February 2022 when we're talking to everyone. So thank you, Duncan. Love the energy. Let's talk to your co-panelists today. Suzanne Hupfer, I just met you a few days ago. So happy to welcome you. And please tell everybody who you are, what you do, what's your role in the TMT report, and what's your passion for our topic. Welcome, Suzanne. Hi there. Um, I'm Suzanne Hupfer, and I'm really excited to be on your podcast today. I'm a research manager in Deloitte's Center for Technology, Media, and Telecom. And in that role, which I've had for about the, the last four years, I research emerging technology topics and the impact that those have on enterprises. Um, the ultimate goal of the research that we do is to bring actionable insights to both business and IT leaders. Um, in terms of the TMT predictions report, this was my first year being a co-author on that report with Duncan and with others, and it was a very exciting experience to work on some of these topics. Um, by way of background, I have a background in computer science, and I've been in the tech industry for over two decades, seems like a very long time, in, in roles that have included software research and development and strategy consulting and thought leadership. And I am really excited about developments in technology because it's just amazing to me to see over the years how computing power is fitting into smaller and smaller devices and how apps are making really cool um, really cool use cases available to us in such small form factors. Another thing that I'm very passionate about is the topic of women in technology, which we'll be talking about a bit today. And as we know, that has been a challenge for decades, getting more women involved in tech. And in general, I'd love to see greater diversity of all kinds in technology. It, it's really important that as technologists invent the future, that the creators of that future be representative of it. Thank you very much, Suzanne. We're very happy to have you here. Was it, I'm going to ask, was it exciting to work with Duncan and his team on this report? Did you say, wow, this is something exciting and, and new? What do you think? Absolutely. Yeah, a really great, fun experience, and I hope to do it again. There you go. And I'm just so intrigued. Duncan, before we get into the opening quotes you both so graciously sent me, TMT, are we putting this up on a banner somewhere? Is this we're going to be talking about TMT? Will people know what it is, or do we still need to say technology, media, and telecommunications? In other words, is this becoming an industry-known term, or do we need to define it? Excuse me for asking, but I'm intrigued. It's a good question. About 15 years ago, Deloitte was one of the very few people who used TMT. And we would say TMT. And people would say, are you saying TNT? Is this explosives? What? Because there are other things. People call it IT. They call it ICT. They call, they call it all kinds of things. Over time, more and more people now understand what TMT uh, means. And they don't think I'm the, the coyote with the Acme blow up things anymore. So that's good. That's progress. But we still need to define it most of the time. Well, I'm glad that I asked the question then. You know me, I'm always curious about these things. So thank you very much. Let's go to the opening quotes. As always here on the Connecticut Enterprise, I asked my guests to send me a quote from a fictional movie or TV character or a song. We have a song today. And then they're going to explain what the quote 
has to do with our topic in their own words, their own insights. So Duncan has selected a quote from a song by Tim Buck 3. That's T-I-M-B-U-K, the number three. It's the opening track from their 1986 debut album, Greetings from Tim Buck 3. And it was released as the album's first single that year. Here's the quote. I love this one, Duncan. Let's see what you do with this. The future's so bright, I gotta wear shades. Duncan, talk to us. So I actually remember, I'm old enough, I remember this song. I danced to this song. And there's a really important backstory. Most people who heard the song without listening to the lyrics were like, oh, the future's great. And that's actually not what the song was about. 86 was a worried time. Russian-American stuff, atom bombs, uh, nuclear protests. That's actually what the song's about. It was about a scientist who was kind of unworried about making nuclear weapons. And it was a real political commentary. But hold on a sec, Bonnie. If you go even deeper into the backstory, Timbuk3 was actually a husband and wife. And when they were first married, they were so happy and so looking forward to their life together that, that the wife actually said, future's so bright, we got to wear shades. I'm paraphrasing. Now, why am I so excited about this? First of all, I love that initial enthusiasm, and I think we all have that about technology. But at the second thing, we have to be responsible. Technology has its downsides, has its perils. We know this. We need to be cautious sometime in the same way that a nuclear scientist shouldn't make bombs for bad people. So there's there's a message there. You know, technology has its perils. But that takeaway, and that way that most people heard that song, Future So Bright, I Gotta Wear Shades, that's actually, I think, kind of at the end of the day, how I feel about technology. Yes, it has its perils. Yes, we need to be careful. But I am looking at a whole lot of technologies in 2022 and beyond that are about to transform the kinetic enterprise, making the world, I believe, over the long term, a better and more exciting place for me, my kids, and should my kids ever kind of get get going on this, my grandchildren, if any. <laughs> well, that's what we all want. And, and my tagline on my email signature is, let's all work together to make 2022 a better world, a better place, a better life, right? Because that's what we want coming out of what we've been through for the past couple of years. Thank you, Duncan, for the optimism. And I will take that line from the song as an optimistic bright future. And let's just go with what it said rather than the backstory. And thank you for, for presenting it that way. I appreciate it. Suzanne Hupfer has sent us a quote from a very interesting movie. The movie was The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, 2008 American fantasy romantic drama film directed by David Fincher. Suzanne, I love the way they put together all these genres now in terms of when they describe. It used to be it's a comedy, it's a drama. Now it's everything put together. And uh, the storyline by Eric Roth and Robin Swincord is based on a short story by, of all people, F. Scott Fitzgerald, written in 1922. And Brad Pitt stars as a man who ages in reverse. Mm, here's the quote. Our lives are defined by opportunities, even the ones we miss. What a beautiful quote. Suzanne, talk to me. How did you find this and what does it have to do with our topic? Go ahead. Um, Well, found it by looking through, you know, great movie quotes of the last few decades. And this one was the one that really popped out as speaking to me. And I think it's because it's so applicable to life, to business, to almost any, any sphere that you can think of. So if you think about your life and the paths you've taken, and especially the successful paths you've taken that, that ended up with a great result, I think you can trace many of those outcomes back to some kind of crossroads when you were presented with an opportunity 
and you chose to take it at exactly the right moment. And then, you know, the flip side of that is when you think back on some of the regrets in your life, probably many of those can also be traced back to an opportunity that you didn't take or that you missed. And then when you think about business or the tech business, you know, I think the quote applies there as well, because success in tech really comes down to seizing the right opportunities at the right time, whether that's adopting a new technology advancement at the right time and not being too late to the table with it, or choosing to embark on a project at the right time or a fruitful partnership at the right time. So I, I think that's why the quote speaks to me. I think it's, it's very applicable to whatever we're doing in life or in business. There you go. Thank you so much. And it's it's true. When I was, I'm a woman in tech as well, Suzanne. I was before you, but uh, interestingly enough, the the concept of digital zeros and ones is a concept in life of if you do nothing, you've made the choice for the zero rather than doing something. Which Duncan, am I right? And Suzanne, you made the choice of one. So zero and one binary. That's what we called it back in the day. I also wrote knew about Ebsidic too, but for programming. But what I'm trying to say is that um, it's a choice and what we miss can be that that fork in the road that or that triple part. I lived in Cambridge, Massachusetts for many years and we had the roundabouts where five roads converged on a circle. And the question was, who got to go first and where did you end up on the other side of the circle? So that in a way is a microcosm of what you're talking about. Suzanne and Duncan, thank you for the very interesting quotes. I appreciate the research you did on this in addition to your TMT research. Let's go headlong into the discussion part of our show, the roundtable, if you will. So I'm going to tell our audience that this is a little different than our usual show. I've received highlights from the TMT 2022 report, and I'm going to assign the starting of each of the highlights to one or the other. I've got one topic from only Suzanne, one topic only Duncan, and then we're going to have our usual back and forth. So instead of reading a statement and saying, Duncan, and then Suzanne, agree or disagree, I'm going to say, please add or please expand this. So, so that way we will get to cover a nice amount of depth of the research report. Duncan, you on board with that? Feel good? And Suzanne, good. Okay. Mm -hmm. So let's start off with a Duncan-only topic. Duncan, this is so top of mind for everybody. Uh, it's phrased in different ways. The topic is chip shortage, and those of us who, who aren't looking at automotive or anything that requires chips are looking at supply chain, supply chain, supply chain, the bigger topic. And that's a term that was not used at cocktail parties, if you can remember going to those before the pandemic. Hello, I remember. Uh, it's something that is in everyday parlance now. So let me read what your statement is here, and then we'll ask you to take about three minutes and tell us more. You say the current ship, chip shortage will last another year, costing billions with a capital B, but there are things you can do about it. Oh, Duncan, set our minds at ease. Go ahead. So, and this is, this is actually similar to the whole supply chain conversation. A lot of people kind of, you know, one of my Deloitte colleagues said, you know, three years ago, she's been in the chip that she says she's been in semiconductor for decades and her kids never knew what she did. Now everybody does. We all understand that every device, you know, with the exception of, I don't know, paper clips, every device has chips in it these days. There's, there's, there's chips in everything. There's more chips in everything. And those chips matter. Bonnie, in a very real way, I started in this business in 1990. Back in the day, cars would have five or 10 bucks worth of chips in them. And if you didn't have the chips, well, that was fine. It wasn't really a big deal. In 2022, the average car has 400. The average North American car is getting close to $1,000 worth of chips. And if you ain't got the chips, you ain't got a car. Cars are 
basically smartphones on wheels, and that trend is only increasing. But it's not just automotive, Bonnie. It's vacuum cleaners and fridges and kids' toys, plus all the smartphones and computers and data centers and all the usual consumers of chips. How bad is the chip shortage? Half trillion dollars and counting. Is it over? Nope. Will it be over by 2023? Nope. Uh... Will it be as bad? No, we are anticipating that things are going to improve. Chip manufacturers and governments are getting together around the world, Bonnie, and they are spending literally hundreds of billions of dollars building new chip fabricating plants, also known as fabs. And interestingly, they're not building them all where they used to be in East Asia. Just uh, uh, Bonnie, uh, Suzanne, you're both in the States. I'm in Canada. Canada gets exactly zero new chip plants. This probably won't shock anybody, but, you know, when the chips are down, Canada gets nothing. But we are building new plants in the States. So Oregon, Arizona, Texas, Upper New York. Uh, Columbus, Ohio, we are seeing this explosion in North American chip manufacturing, and that is hopefully going to help solve. Bonnie, you look like you want to ask me a question there. Well, my question was that uh, I just wanted to tell you that I had an automotive-focused show last year, radio show, and I spoke to some of industry experts, uh, industry insiders, and they said that there were massive car lots, Duncan and Suzanne, where manufacturers were parking the cars that didn't have the chips. And then they had to figure out how to inventory the cars. And when chips were available, how did they find that name, any make, model? <laughs> where was that car so that they could pull it out of the massive lot, put the chips in, and put it in the showroom or on the on the lot and inventory it to be sold? And this was a conundrum that they didn't expect because, Duncan, they were stockpiling cars that didn't have chips. Do you, are you aware of that or can you comment oh, on that? Oh, sure. That That is 100%. And this is where, remember uh, in the statement you said, the chip shortage won't go away and there are things you can do about it. Yes. So we actually believe, sorry, I'm not supposed to say we, uh, I helped write a report and, and uh, I believe, uh, Duncan believes, there are five things that you can actually do. Some of them I already talked about. Generally, build more chip plants. We're doing that. Build more chip plants closer to the end market. So that means building a chip plant closer to Detroit and and Windsor, Ontario, where we make the cars. That's number two. Uh, number three, uh, you can do stuff around. Uh, 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 I'm I'm blanking on my five here. Hang on, I I know I have them in here. Oh, uh, better transparency in the supply chain. So Deloitte uh, has a, a bunch of publications around digital supply networks and a digital digital capabilities model. Now, I know, Bonnie, you don't like me selling stuff on the podcast, but when we talk about the fix, there's actual things that Deloitte does that helps people who make chips, people who distribute chips, and people who buy chips work on solving these problems because it's called breaking the bullwhip. There is this thing in your supply chains that you just talked about where little tiny problems, if, if I am a buyer of chips and I change my mind, oh, I want more, I want less, by the time that gets all the way through the bullwhip to the chip manufacturer and then back to me, a little tiny change that I have made can cause 16, 18, 24 week disruptions. And, and the whole simple version is we need more data, more transparency, more AI, different kinds of models, digital transformation. All of these things together will, one, help the current chip shortage and two, make the next shortage because there will be one make it a little less severe. 
Thank you very much. <laughs> very, very interesting. And again, top of mind, as you said, it's not just cars. Chip, 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 chip. And thinking of cookies, <laughs> at, least, at least we have chocolate chips. Although I did see an article the other day that said, where has the chocolate milk gone? And I didn't read it, but I thought, what a great title for a radio show. I might start a show this year called, <laughs> Where's the Chocolate Milk? I'm sorry. So thank you very much, Duncan. Suzanne, I have a Suzanne-only topic here. This is exciting. I mentioned in the intro, I don't even know what that is. It's Wi-Fi 6. And you say, admittedly, Wi-Fi 6 may not be as well known as 5G, which everybody talks about, and I'm not sure everybody gets that either. But you say, Suzanne, it will be indispensable to the future of enterprise connectivity. Oh, Suzanne, enlighten us, please. Go ahead. Sure. So, you know, I think we've all heard a lot about 5G in the press over the last couple of years and probably less so about Wi-Fi 6. But the point here is that both of these are advanced uh, wireless technologies that will help your devices, whether it's you as a consumer or you as an enterprise customer. It will help get your devices connected and working at faster speeds with lower latency than the previous generations of these cellular or Wi-Fi technologies. So the point I wanted to make, though, is that even though 5G has been in the news so much, we haven't heard as much about Wi-Fi 6, but it is likely to be equally important to the future of connectivity, both for consumers and in the enterprise. And in fact, Wi-Fi 6 devices are currently outselling 5G devices by a large margin, and Deloitte expects that to continue for at least the next few years. In fact, we're predicting that at least 2.5 billion Wi-Fi 6 devices will ship this year, 2022, versus roughly 1.5 billion 5G devices. Now, these, these can be things like PCs, tablets, your smartphone, any kind of smart home device that needs to connect to the internet, and also small devices like wearables. In enterprises and factories, they can be devices that connect, um, say, robots on a factory floor or robots or other equipment at shipping ports or at international airports. And we did a study of enterprise and networking executives, and we found that they view both Wi-Fi 6 and 5G as the most critical wireless technologies for their businesses today. And they're expecting that that importance will continue to increase in the years to come. So as part of that study that we did, it was called the 2021 Deloitte Global Advanced Wireless Study. And we found that really Wi-Fi 6 and 5G, they're sometimes viewed as competing technologies, but they're actually technologies that are in close partnership with one another. And in fact, 98% of the networking executives that we surveyed said that their organization would be using both technologies within the next three years. So it's not an either or, it's using both for complementary use cases. And as I alluded to before, both of these technologies have advances over their predecessor technologies in terms of um, supplying faster speeds, lower latency, greater device density. That means you can get um, more devices connected in a particular area of the network and better network capacity. But the, the technologies also have complementary strengths. So they have slightly different strengths when it comes to things like range, cost, and support for mobile devices. Right now, there are standard standards bodies that are creating networking standards that will help the two technologies work together really smoothly. And we expect that in the future, these kinds of devices are going to be able to roam securely and seamlessly from one network to the other. 
Thank you very much, Suzanne. Very, very interesting. The idea of more devices and device density is is very, very interesting. Duncan, you were nodding voraciously. Anything you'd like to add to that? Um, one thing that actually ties back to the chip shortage a little. So when I look at Suzanne's findings, uh, which I agree with completely, one of the things that she hasn't gone into is right now, as, as, as I may have mentioned for four and a half minutes a second ago, there's a chip shortage. That chip shortage is having a more profound impact on 5G modules for the enterprise than it is for Wi-Fi 6. So you can go out right now and by and large, there's not bad availability of Wi-Fi 6 and the price is much lower. Meanwhile, those high-end, more recent, more advanced 5G chips, they are expensive when you can get them and you can't always get them. That's almost Almost certainly some of the 2022-2023 reason why Wi-Fi 6 is so far ahead of 5G. Over time, as the chip shortage recedes, we'll probably see that come into a little more balance. Thank you. Suzanne, any comments back to Duncan before we move to a new topic? I I think Duncan pretty much covered it. I I appreciate that (laughs) connection of the chips to this topic as well. Thank you. I will tell you both that I've had large connection issues here in my community in Durham, North Carolina, and I searched without any success for a fiber optics connection. And I was told by the providers that they had dropped fiber optics lines within two blocks of my home, but that it didn't pay financially, economically for them to bring it to into the actual blocks where the houses were, and they had no plans anytime soon. And this went on for company after company after company. And somebody told, a salesman called me and said, you have to move your office into a building that has fiber. You're going to pay whatever the rent is, and then we're charging you $400 a month to connect to fiber optics for high speed. Good luck, lady. It was almost an immoral discussion because it just didn't even apply to to me as a small business person. So anyway, Suzanne, thank you for the good news. I appreciate that. And Duncan, thank you for the almost good news. I appreciate that too. This is a lot of reality checks we're doing today. Let's move on. We have a lot of topics to cover. The next one is interesting, gender gap in reading. Suzanne, I'm going to read your opening salvo here, your opening line and ask you to expand it. Then we'll get a back backside of what we're the other side from Duncan and see if he agrees or disagrees. Suzanne says, boys don't read as much as girls. Oh my. And they don't read books by and about women. Double oh my. And that's the problem, including reading score gap and empathy gap. Oh, I want to hear about the empathy gap. Suzanne, enlighten us, please. Sure. So this topic, you know, full disclosure, Duncan and another one of my colleagues were the people who researched this. So when I got to read this part of the report, it was kind of news to me too, and really interesting news, but not good news. So what we're talking about here is that there is data from multiple countries around the world that boys and men read fewer books than women do and and girls do. And they also spend less time reading than girls and women do. I, I found that rather surprising. And we predict that the gap will persist in 2022 and beyond. It, it's not exactly a new issue. It's been something that's been going on for years and building for years. We don't necessarily think the problem's going to get worse, but there's also no indication that it's a problem that's shrinking. And not only does it extend to number of books and time spent reading, but it also extends to reading comprehension, where there's data indicating that boys and men don't have as good of a reading comprehension as females do. 
So we might ask, you know, what what's the big deal about this? Are people even reading books anymore? And, and you know, it is incredibly important because there is this gap in reading comprehension. But if we think about it a little bit deeper, there's a gap in empathy or, or it really points to a gap in empathy. So we know that boys and men are reading fewer books that are authored by women and they're reading fewer books that have female protagonists. So if they're failing to read books by women and about women or books that have girls and women as the heroes, we could think that they're failing to gain an understanding of non-male viewpoints. You know, it, it's really a gap that's developing here. And it means that boys and men, if you take this to the next level, they could really be missing out on an opportunity to develop emotional intelligence and empathy because they're just not reading about this other viewpoint. So in the in the grander scheme of things, you know, we're living in a time when we're all striving for greater diversity, equity, and inclusion. And having this go on is, is not really helpful in a time when DEI is so important. And we know that employers value emotional intelligence and empathy so much in their employees. So could we be setting up um, boys as they grow up to not have those needed skills that employers are looking at so much? So ultimately, and I know this, this could be debatable, we can ask Duncan what he thinks about it too, but having that gap in reading may ultimately make men and boys less employable in the long run. And I think we we could argue if you think even broader than employment, I think it hurts society to not have them have these viewpoints. Well, I agree. And I'm not your co-panelist technically. So yes, didn't even think about that. And the repercussions, the ramifications, Suzanne, not just hireable, but when they are hired and they're on a team and they lack that empathy and that sense of, of diversity in the sense of you're different from me. I want your point of view rather than you're different from me. Don't talk to me. It, interesting. Duncan, weigh in on this, please. Duncan Stewart. Technology, media, telecom. Hey, Bonnie, I've invented this magic device. It's this latest, greatest high-tech thing that allows you to see the world through somebody's eyes, to experience life, to walk in their shoes. It's only been around since the 1400s in Gutenberg. It's called the book. And I, the reason I, I actually helped co-author this prediction is I have kids. And my daughter said to me four years ago, Dad, I love you. You read a lot. You suggest lots of books. Have you ever noticed you read almost entirely books by men and almost never books by women? And I went, oh, gosh, you have got me. And she gave me two books by women for Christmas. And since then, I have not read a book by a man. And it has been the best four years of reading I have done. I read about 120, 130 books a year, all by women. And this is where my turn. What can you do? What can you do to narrow the reading gap? And it's on us, dads. If we read books in front of our kids, especially our sons, they are going to be more likely to become readers. We can tell them to read. That'll have no effect. If they see us reading, they will read. If we read to them, they will read. And if we read books by and about women and also by and about women from different cultures, different languages, different races, races different sexual orientations, all of these are back to my magic uh, technology called the book that lets us actually see the world through somebody else's eyes. And, and as a dad... Isn't that a duty I have my, to my kids? I would think it would. We need that awareness, though, for a dad to realize that that's his duty. That's part of his role and his job. Suzanne, agree with this? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and I, I, when I first heard that Duncan only reads books by women, um, you know, I, I just applaud that. It's just such a cool thing. You, you might be the only 
Only man on earth that's currently <laughs> committed to doing that. <laughs> a little birdie told me that you post on your LinkedIn page, Duncan, the books you're reading. And the question everybody listening and watching this this show wants to know is when do you find the time to read over 100 books a year? Are these ebooks or hard copies, may I ask? Mainly, mainly hard copy, mainly from the Toronto Public Library. The library is amazing. They get books from all over Toronto. I, I, I couldn't afford to spend this much on books, and I'd have nowhere to keep them. But I, I will say, where do you get the time? I don't watch video. I don't watch streaming video. I don't watch TV. Instead of spending, the average American spends four hours and 20 minutes a day watching video. Duncan spends zero and instead spends that time reading. Hasn't hurt Eric- me so far. Very interesting shift in priorities and shift in media. That's part of what we're talking about today. How nice to tie that in. Thank you both. That's absolutely fascinating. By the way, I've been speaking on one of my other radio shows with a a number of women thriller novelists. Interesting. Some of them are lawyers or former lawyers. One of them is a woman who specializes, she's a physician who specializes in uh, toxicology. And she writes books that feature poisons in the murders in her mysteries because that's her knowledge base so her books are all about some kind of poison and she has the knowledge to put those into the plots fascinating i can send you the names of some of these these authors are just fascinating women so that might become on your on your future reading list thank you both let's move on this is absolutely fascinating a a somewhat related topic to gender gap in reading is women in tech aha Uh, let's see duncan wants to go first on this one and duncan says the good news Although there were still too few women in tech, and Suzanne and I can attest to that, the big tech companies are making progress on hiring more women. More women are showing up in tech roles and taking tech roles and having more women as leaders in tech. Be still my heart. Duncan, uh, take about three minutes, and then we'll see what Suzanne has to say. Go ahead. Well, first of all, let's not go nuts on the good news side. It's still bad. It's still awful. Uh, The percentage of women who work at big tech companies, parity is 50-50. We are, even though it's growing a couple percent every few years, that suggests we'll actually hit parity sometime around the year 2050. So uh, when we say good news, we, we mean it only in the relative sense. Bonnie, during the pandemic, women were especially hard hit. Uh, uh, they were frequently in reduction in force. Women were the ones fired. Uh, th- there were a lot of uh, uh, female unemployment rose faster than male in most countries. Despite that, the biggest tech companies, now we can't tell you who, but if you think about a big tech company, they were probably one of the ones we looked at. They publicly report how many women they have as overall workforce. And that number is up a couple of points by the end of this year from pre-pandemic. In a time when generally female participation in the labor force fell, that is a significant and laudable accomplishment. That's the first bit of good news. The second bit of good news is the percentage of women in technical roles is even lower. At these big tech companies, you had women in PR and marketing and stuff like that. But increasingly, the percentage who are actually doing the software, the, the Suzanne Hupfers, the PhDs in computer science, though there's more and more of those, and that's great. So more women in technical roles. And it's growing, and in percentage terms, actually slightly faster than overall workforce. But to me, 
the really great news is women in leadership. Now, it's a little hard to define exactly what leadership is. Company by company, it varies slightly. But at a high level, the fastest growing category over the last few years and into 2022 is women in leadership positions. And I think this is interesting because that's not a pipeline issue. There's lots of women out there in tech companies, and tech companies are actually able to reach into their deep, deep pockets of talent and promote women at a high rate setting the tone, setting the culture, and hopefully uh, that will lead to an acceleration in overall female employment within tech companies. We hope so, and it is an exciting field. Suzanne, let's get your POV on this, please. Sure. So thanks to Duncan for kind of laying out the landscape like that. You know, one um, thing that we have to consider in this, too, is what effect has the pandemic had on women in the TMT workforce? And there was a Deloitte study in 2021 that studied um, thousands of women globally across different industries and in ter- tried to get at what are their attitudes towards work and life during the pandemic and what's happening with their perspectives. So we took, you know, being from a TMT center, we were most interested in seeing what was happening to women in the TMT workforce. So we did a deep dive into that data, and there's some pretty bad news in that data. So looking at those TMT women specifically, they they were asked what aspects of their lives they rate as good or extremely good, and what did they think was good or extremely good at the start of the pandemic or before the pandemic, and how are they feeling in the middle of the pandemic? And these were items like, how do you feel about your productivity at work? How do you feel about your motivation? How do you feel about job satisfaction, your loyalty to your employer? And how do you feel about your physical and mental well-being? And on every one of those items, the TMT women's satisfaction with them has dropped really dramatically. In fact, on the line item that was about work-life balance, the satisfaction level with work-life balance plummeted by 38 percentage points in that group. So very dramatic and very troubling drop. And in fact, four in 10 of those TMT women said that their organization, feel that their organization um, has supported them adequately during the pandemic, but that leaves at least six in 10 that feel their organization has not been supportive enough of them during the pandemic. And in fact, you know, maybe the, the most troubling aspect here is that almost six in 10 of those TMT women globally said they have plans to leave their employer within the next two years. So, you know, this ties into that um, thought that we've been hearing out there about the great resignation. And certainly this is a group that we need to keep our eye on because they've really been troubled by what's been happening to them during the pandemic. You know, it's not all bad news because I think the first step is realizing that there is an issue and then tech companies can see what they can do about that issue. One is to realize that perhaps they haven't been supporting their employees and especially female employees enough during the pandemic. So they could help proactively craft programs that would help the workers balance their work and well-being needs during this really difficult time. Another thing, thinking more broadly than the pandemic, another thing that they can do to kind of get the numbers of women up in the tech industry is consider how they can broaden the talent pool. So, you know, one silver lining of the pandemic is the whole notion of work from anywhere, which has really expanded. And that can be a really great um, 
way to get more women and more diverse talent into the tech labor force. Because now you're not just looking for the best tech talent within commuting distance of your office, but you can spread your search to your entire country or maybe even the whole world and find the talent where it exists and where it currently lives. Thank you. And, uh, mm -hmm. Go ahead, Suzanne. Go ahead. Oh, what, one more thing. Um, you know, employers can also think about recruiting from overlooked worker segments. So this might be women who are getting back into the labor force after some time away, or it might be women transitioning from other industries. Thank you very much. And it's interesting to me, Duncan and Suzanne, how these topics seem to segue into each other, even though I don't know if you intended it that way, because the next topic is mental health apps. Oh, my goodness. Talking about empathy, talking about workforce, talking about satisfaction in jobs. And Suzanne, I'm surprised that only 38% of women said they were not, not satisfied with their jobs. I thought it would have been much higher than that. And I know there's a mass exodus of female physicians, and you mm. all can imagine the, the pressure. I have somebody in my family who has, is leaving medicine after 25 years because of the pressure and the lack of support, and the, the reasons are common. So women in tech, women in, in uh, hands-on customer and patient-facing roles are saying, bye-bye, I've had enough. Very interesting. So let's talk about mental health apps. Suzanne, you're first on this one. You say mental health care needs are pressing around the world. Apps can deliver support on demand and on the go. Go ahead, Suzanne. Yes. So mental health conditions like anxiety and depression affect millions of people around the world. And by some estimates, 11% of people around the world have some mental health condition. There, There's also indications, you know, probably not surprising given our last topic, but there's indications that conditions have been on the rise since the pandemic started. We, we You know, I can personally say how much more stress that's that's put on daily life. And, you know, we, we like to say there, there's an app for that. Well, now there's apps for mental health as well. And Deloitte predicts that global spending on mental health applications will reach about $500 million in 2022, and it's moving at about an annual growth rate of 20%. That doesn't even include other kinds of apps that might have mental health type features embedded within them. So why are they growing so fast? Well, they're easy to access. You know, in, it may be hard sometimes to access actual mental health professionals. There's so much demand for them. And in some areas, there may not be enough clinicians or therapists to meet the demand. But an app can be downloaded at any time and be on the phone within minutes. So they're easy to access. They're easy to use. And there's also some indication that they can be effective, in particular, if they are used in conjunction with professional help. They're also quite affordable compared to, say, going to a therapist. Hey, Bonnie, can I jump in, right? Just sure. a segue right. into Suzanne's thing here. So I actually wanted to share like a direct – I always like making this personal. So first of all, there's a stigma about mental health there shouldn't be. I was badly clinically depressed in 95, 96, and I went to my doctor and I said, hey, I'm feeling depressed. Can you give me those little magic antidepressant pills? And, and she said, sure, they do work. People who take just the pills, about 20% will see a fairly good response. Or you could just talk to a therapist. And about 20, 25% of people who just talk to therapists see uh, uh, a rapid improvement. But people who do both at the same time, it's like 70 or 80%. And this is a fundamental insight about how we treat mental health. There are different approaches. And if you do one at a time, it's better than nothing, but it's not a solution. 
where I'm going with this is these mental health apps are really not meant to be used in isolation. They are not a replacement for talk therapy for uh, where needed uh, taking the, taking your magic pills. However, there are clinical studies, and Suzanne mentioned this. There are clinical studies that if you if you basically have you got your pills and you got your doctor and you have a thing in your pocket that reminds you focus, meditate, breathe, take your pills, go to see your doctor. That really is the third leg to the stool that reinforces this, leading to superior outcomes. Thank you. And I want to say that our time is getting a little tight here, but this is a perfect segue into Suzanne's next topic, wearable devices. Because Duncan said, if you've got something in your pocket that will remind you. So we talked about mental health apps. Now we talk about something that's tangible, that's physical, that you can look at. It's a smart watch. It's an armband. It's something that is helping you with your own biometrics. It's something that can convey and record information for your physician. And Duncan, I think the going rate for a therapist now specialized is about $215 an hour, I've been told. So I don't know, but I've been told through through some physicians in my family. Yes. So anyway, Suzanne, you want to take us through wearables? Yes. So we know that people have used smartwatches for years now to do things like count steps and track their workouts. They've had a real fitness application. But now millions of them, thanks to increases in AI and sensors, millions of them are now using these devices to monitor their health around the clock. For example, smartwatches can now be used for things like detecting heart problems like atrial fibrillation, you know, which if undetected can can have bad effects like leading to strokes. So health applications are spurring this growth in smartwatches and Deloitte predicts that shipments of smartwatches will reach 220 million units in 2022 and that's having an annual growth rate of 11% through 2024. Uh, the other aspect here is smart patches. So these are smaller than smart watches. They're tiny devices that connect directly to the skin. And some of them even have microscopic needles that would detect things like blood glucose levels or deliver medications to people. And the growth in that is even faster. Um, it's a 19% annual growth rate through 2024. They're, they're typically made by medical or technologies companies, but they're increasingly being sold to consumers directly. Interesting. Duncan, thoughts on wearables before we move on to, and Suzanne, you gave me the perfect segue to our next topic, which is AI, but go ahead, Duncan, talk about wearables, and then we're going to dive right into that one. So this, it's, this isn't about how many steps you take or how well you're sleeping at night. So I'm a former biotech analyst. I don't, many people don't know this, but I used to actually run a biotech fund. There are some diseases where, you know, I can check in once every six months, once a year, and it's like, okay, here's what you have. But then there are four really important things going on, things like blood oxygenation in long COVID, things like your heartbeat when you've got atrial fibrillation, blood pressure, and then the real killer of of millions of people around the world, diabetes. When I monitor your blood pressure, your heart rate, your blood glucose, or your blood oxygenation, this is complicated, Bonnie, bear with me here, more is better. Continuous monitoring leads to people suffering fewer side effects and living longer. That's the statement. So if I can put something on your wrist or on your arm that monitors continuously, people around the world will live longer. That's why wearables is a good thing. Very interesting. Suzanne, any closing remarks on that before I move on? One more topic. I just think it's incredibly fascinating, and I can't see. I can't wait to see where this um, industry goes next with these devices. 
And is there any demographic analysis or numbers on, let's say, the over 55, over 65 population in terms of adopting, embracing, going for, asking for, and using, religiously using wearable devices for health, Duncan or Suzanne? Yes, we have that data because I know we surveyed it. I don't remember what that data is. It's probably in the full prediction on on the website. Uh, but we do have a uh, breakdown by age from our survey data. I just don't recall it at, at this point. That's fine. And you can give a, a link if you want at the end of the show where people can find this if it's available. So that's that. Would, we just have a lot of good segues here. Let's go to our final topic. It's two parts. We're going to talk about AI regulation and keeping AI private. So, Suzanne, you're going to lead us off with this. The majority of enterprise adopting AI believe it will substantially transform both their organization and their industry by 2023. And we're now in 2022 early in the year. So Suzanne, give me about two and a half minutes of this, and then we'll see what Duncan has to say. Go ahead. Okay. So Deloitte has been conducting AI studies for the last few years. And in 2020, we did one of them. It's a global study of enterprises who are adopting AI. So at the time that we did it in 2020, three quarters of them told us that AI would substantially transform their organization by 2023. And six in 10 said it would substantially transform their entire industry by then. So we should be well into this transformative phase right now. And there was a a follow-on study in 2021, the next round of the study, to explore exactly what kinds of transformations are happening inside enterprises using AI. It was of um, almost 3,000 executives from 11 different countries around the world. That study identified a leader group that we call the transformers. It was a little bit over a quarter of the sample. And these were the ones that had the highest number of AI application types that they're running, and they've achieved the highest outcomes. So what's interesting is that this transformer group is having a different set of behaviors relating to AI. One thing is that compared to the lower achievers or the lowest AI achievers, they're more than three times as likely to have set up an enterprise-wide AI strategy. So having clear strategy is really important. They're more than twice as likely to have senior leaders that have communicated a bold vision for AI to the company. And they're nearly three times as likely to have created new roles or changed operations to take advantage of AI. But I think that, you know, the thing that's really interesting is to look at risks of AI, things like cybersecurity vulnerabilities, lack of transparency or explainability of AI systems, um, issues relating to the ethics or, of the systems, and also new and changing regulations. And for each of these potential risks, about four in 10 of that transformer group say they're extremely prepared to address the risks, whereas for the lower group, it's more like um, two in 10 or fewer. So I think that, you know, hopefully is a good segue for um, Duncan because he is going to talk more about the AI regulation aspect. Thank you, Suzanne. Good intro. Duncan, go for it. Remember those four in 10 who say they were prepared? If we did the survey now, I bet that number would be lower. Why? Because there is a tidal wave of new AI regulation coming from the US, from the EU, from China, from the Canadian government is looking at this, the UK for sure, around the world, regulators have normally kind of been hands off on AI, lightly regulated. We don't want to discourage innovation. Concerns in the last few years about, as Suzanne says, if enterprises are using this everywhere, then regulators need to pay attention. And as concerns have emerged around bias especially, yes, non-transparency, but mainly around things like bias. So there's, a, there's an old phrase that I use. 
AI does not eliminate human bias. AI Mm -hmm. does not reflect human bias. AI amplifies human bias. And it does so at the speed of light in ways that we can't even detect or observe or stop, which is why regulators around the world are about to start regulating AI more heavily with fines, with complete bans on certain technologies. It is a whole new world of regulation here. And and a lot of companies need to take a much deeper look at where they're going to use AI and how, especially in HR. Thank you. Very, very interesting. I'm glad you mentioned bias. I did another one of my radio shows the other day, and the topic was AI and governance, data governance. And in my research on the topic, I discovered something called there are four pillars of AI ethics. Where do you find your data? How has it been used or touched? And the fourth one is how do you use it? How is it used? So that's a whole whole other show. We have one more part of this topic, and we got to wrap in about two minutes. So, Duncan, keeping AI private, let's do this quick segue. Homomorphic encryption and federated learning are technologies that will help big companies use AI but better protect privacy. That's another key thing. I don't know if the horse got out of the barn door with privacy. People say, oh, I don't want to be on Facebook. I don't want to do this. They probably, everybody knows everything about you anyway. So Duncan, privacy, is there ever hope for that? Talk to me. Two minutes. That's it. Bonnie, I think you and I are, I'm not even sure Suzanne's old enough for this, but do you remember (laughs) Johnny Carson and remember Karnak the Magnificent? Yes. He would hold an envelope up to his head and it was like he could see inside the envelope. That's it. Homomorphic encryption allows companies to perform AI, machine learning, inference and training on data while it's still encrypted. It's like you can see inside the envelope without tearing it open. Federated learning is a little bit of a different technology. I really don't have time to get into it. Just know that it's out there. But these two technologies are... Bonnie, if you go take a look at the 10 biggest companies in the world by market cap, seven of them are already using either homomorphic encryption or federated learning or both. It is not a panacea. It it doesn't solve your privacy problems, but it allows companies to use AI better and more privately than they did before. It's a small market. It's about half billion dollars, but it is growing. Looks like it's doubling every couple of years. I know the, I know the words are unfamiliar and weird, but five years from now, you'll be able to say, Hey, I remember on Bonnie D's podcast when that weird guy <laughs> talked about homomorphic encryption. So write, write down February 11th in your journals. <laughs> we certainly will. Thank you very much. Duncan Stewart is such, such a joy talking to you always. People say I have high energy. I think you, I think I met my match with you. Thank you very much. Suzanne Hupfer, you are a font of great information. I'm so pleased and honored that you agreed to join Duncan on the show and share all of your knowledge and your insights. And I congratulate you on being part of this TMT predictions report. And I hope the two of you will come back at some future time. I have other, other ideas for other radio shows I want to invite you to be on because I, I want to bring you to even a different audience of global listeners who would benefit fit from hearing all of this. So I want to thank our engineer, Aaron Keller at Voice America. Thank you, Aaron, for always being there for us. I want to thank our showrunner, the wonderful Hasmin Bolianos at Deloitte and all of your colleagues at Deloitte for getting behind this show. And I am thrilled to say we have renewed the Kinetic Enterprise for another year here at 2022 here at Voice America Business, and I'm thrilled to do that. Bonnie D. Graham signing off for the Kinetic Enterprise. For Zoom, everybody, wave bye-bye. 
Thank you for listening to the Kinetic Enterprise, built to evolve, presented by Deloitte. Be sure to join host Bonnie D. Graham next Friday at 6 a.m. Pacific Time and 9 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Deloitte can help you reimagine everything in order to get the most out of your SAP investments and position your business for tomorrow's demands. Learn more at Deloitte.com SAP. This program is copyright Deloitte Development, LLC. All rights reserved.